Leadership. Politicians and others claim to have it. But what is it, really? How do we recognize it? And how do we develop it? And how should churches either separate from or relate to the culture? Also, are there definite boundaries we shouldn't cross with technology? This is Jerry Johnson Live from Criswell College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here is today's host, Dr. Barry Creamer. Boy, I had a great time at Christmas. I hope you did, too. I'm uh, glad to be able to speak with you on this day after my celebration with three different families. I don't mean by that that they're not attached in some way to me, but all three families uh, we get to go and have a celebration with at different times during the Christmas season. So uh, Christmas Eve we spend with my parents and my uh, sister and her family, and so all of our kids get together, and it's a big heyday over at their place. And uh, we have a great time there, and I love the fact that my mom has us read scriptures, and we go around the table last night because she's going on a mission trip. She had us read some scriptures uh, from different languages, and she'll be headed to a a country in Southeast Asia, and so uh, we're praying for her to have a great time there and good ministry. So it was was just a great time being with that family. Then we go to our house, and our kids exchange gifts with each other, and then Santa Claus somehow shows up. I know some of you don't like that, but he does. He shows up at our house anyway, and so he shows up, and our kids are old enough. They know what's going on, but uh, anyway, uh, they uh, get to open gifts from Santa Claus also, and so we had a great time with that. And I'm telling you, the coolest thing about Christmas now is I've got kids that are grown up and working. And so we're getting back all that stuff that we did when we raised them. It's so cool. Anyway, I had a great time at that Christmas. Then we drive three and a half hours down to my parents-in-law and uh, my wife's house and uh, down in the country down there. And so we had a great time visiting with them and coming back from that. Well, we played a game over – now, I'm not a game player, so uh, I'm, I'm just telling you. I don't like to play. I always frown. I'm, I'm uh, grouchy when I'm playing. But I, I actually enjoy doing them. I just like to act like I don't enjoy doing them because that way I seem like I'm above the fray. But anyway, I did have a great time playing this game. I have no idea what it's called. But you start out each round by imagining that someone is something else. Like if I were to say, imagine if Larry, you know, our cucumber, our producer in there, our cool man uh, who's producing the show right now. Imagine if Larry were a vegetable. What would he be? And then you give him five options, and then you have to decide what you think he would be. But that's not actually it. You don't actually decide what you think he would be. You don't say, I think he'd be a tomato or a cucumber, and then pick that. You say, I think he'd be a cucumber, but 
what do I think everybody else would think he's going to be? Because the, the way you win this game is by agreeing with everyone else's decision about what they think he's going to be. So if you're with the majority, you get to move forward and you win the game. And immediately, I don't know if you thought this, but when I was telling you about it, but when I heard that, I immediately thought of politicians. It's exactly what I thought of. I couldn't help it because that's exactly what they do. That's exactly where they live. It's not a matter of figuring out where your convictions are. It's not a matter of figuring out what you think is true. It's a matter of figuring out where you think the majority are going to vote. And if you can agree with them in time, you look like you're leading people. And so our politicians have learned to become not consensus builders, but poll followers. And I want to talk about that in just a few minutes. And in fact, uh, if that reminds you of politicians, it's not because of something new. For uh, honestly, thousands of years, people have recognized that there's a real dichotomy that goes on with leadership of any kind. And politicians, no matter how sniveling or equivocal we may think they are, wow, I'm being too hard on politicians today, aren't I? But uh, no matter what we think of them in general, politicians have a, a really difficult time balancing the same thing all leaders have a difficult time balancing. And that's two different problems that we have. Number one is we've got to get people to follow us. And number two is we have to take them somewhere that they're not already. Now, in order to take them where they are not already, you have to hold some view that they don't already hold. But in order to get them to want to follow you, you've got to agree with them enough that they want to follow you. So we have this tearing between the desire to be different and to lead and the need to agree and to be cooperative with or accommodating to the people who are around us. And so politicians do that with polls and so up and such like that. Plato talked about this. Now, I know, I, I, know you're, I know what you're thinking. Plato, who cares what Plato thought? I just want to bring up Plato because he had said this uh, 400 years before Christ. He had said this about what separates real leaders from what he calls sophists, you know, people who just use words to make it sound like they're accomplishing something, but in reality are just working with the crowd. And he did it in terms of a wild animal. Well, this morning, you can imagine my surprise when I wake up and I read that in San Francisco, Francisco, a tiger had attacked three different visitors to the park and had killed one of them, I think a 17-year-old boy. Uh, and what I want you to hear is what Jack Hanna, you know him, right, uh, what Jack Hanna had said about that attack today when he was asked by CNN. No, you know, because these, these, it's, it's an animal's fault. Usually human arrows involved. Uh, the animal's just being the animal, you know. Um, uh, these animals are... You, you don't know what they're going to do, and that, that's why we try to encourage people that don't that don't know what they're doing not to have these creatures as little pets and, and that type of thing. It'd be cool to have a tiger line, which most states have outlawed that now, because what you're dealing with is a very, very dangerous thing. And, and these folks that work in the zoos, they dedicate their lives to these animals. We all know that, uh, but these accidents do happen, and, and you know we do everything we can to avoid that. Safety comes first in any zoological park. Now you can hear what he's saying that uh, people do have tigers as pets, but there's a there's a danger involved in that because we think we can train them or domesticate them or make them like we want to be, but you actually have to know a lot to get a tri tiger to do what you want it to do. What's funny is that when we're training a tiger, it's my contention, as well as Plato's, he's a smart guy, so I'll agree with him, that what we're really doing is being trained by the tiger because we're not actually domesticating the tiger. We're just learning how to behave 
behave in such a way that the tiger doesn't want to eat us when we're available to it to be eaten. Let me read it to you how Plato says it in Book 6 of his Republic. Now, again, I'm not recommending you go read the whole book, but it is interesting. It has some interesting things in it. And this is what he says about the sophists. He says, mercenary individuals, whom the many call sophists, these are people who just use words in order to get the crowd riled up and agreeing with what they probably already think to begin with. He talks about the sophists, and he says, uh, those, uh, the, the, they call the sophists and whom they deem to be their adversaries do, in fact, teach nothing but the opinion of the many, that is to say, the opinion of their assemblies. Now, just listen. Uh, bear with me as I read this to you. It's really short, but we need to read through it to, for you to be able to get this idea from Plato about what leadership is. And this is their wisdom. I might compare them to a man who should study the tempers and desires of a wild beast, like a tiger, for instance, who is fed by him. He would learn how to approach and to handle him, also at what times and from what causes he is dangerous, or uh, that he might reverse and turn on him, or what is the meaning of his several cries, and by what sounds, when another utters them, he's soothed or infuriated. So you learn how the tiger acts in different circumstances, when he gets angry and when he's soothed by something. And then he supposes further that when, by continually attending upon him, he's become perfect in all this, he calls that knowledge some kind of a skill or a wisdom that he has, and he makes it of a system of art. But listen to what Plato says next. He says, which he proceeds to teach, although he has no real notion of what he means by the principles or passions of which he is speaking, but calls one thing honorable, good, and another thing dishonorable or bad or good or evil or just or unjust, all in accordance with the tastes and tempers of the great brute. There's nothing actually good or bad about what he's doing. It just happens to work. And what Plato says is that politicians are like that. They're like people who have learned to get the crowd to support them, but in reality, they've learned to say what the crowd has trained them to say so that they can get what they want, which is a little more power or a little more uh, sophistication or a little more respect when they're in their office or whatever. And I think that's what a lot of leaders have become. They've become the kind of people who are just working to stay uh, next to the crowd and make it look like they're in front of the crowd. Uh, by the way, uh, zookeepers make mistakes too. Politicians make mistakes, and sometimes they get devoured by their crowds. You remember last year, this very same tiger had attacked the arm of the lady, I think, that was feeding the tiger, uh, a worker, a zookeeper, who was feeding the tiger and uh, chewed off part of her arm. It was a horrible experience. That was last year, the same tiger. So everybody can make mistakes with that. Well, here's the deal that's not real leadership. That's learning to follow the wild beast, the crowd, the consensus, the, 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 the whole group of people. And, you know, the hypocrisy that we have in ourselves. Now, you just think about this and be honest with yourself. The hypocrisy we have in ourselves is that we elect people because we want them to be leaders. And then when they do anything we don't like, we begin to rip into them because they're not doing what we want them to do. We elect them, we should elect them, because of their virtue, because of their nobility, because of their wisdom, because of their strength of leadership, because of their vision, whatever. And we should learn to want our leaders to take us where we would not go ourselves. I can remember all kinds of examples like this. I just want you to think about the political races and consider whether our politicians are acting as leaders or simply acting as, uh, you know, those who figure out what the great beast wants and just give it what it wants to hear. Uh, when we take polls, that's exactly what we're doing. Now, I, you can vote for who you want to. You can think what you want about them. This is an issue about the Christian worldview, not who you have to vote for. But it's important for us to understand where people stand on their ability to lead and whether they actually have a value they want to lead toward or not. Now, here's just a sample. We could, we could pull out samples of anybody we wanted to, to show this, uh, you know, in case. But here's Barack Obama making a comment about uh, polls recently. The reason I think we're doing well is that we represent 
uh, a set of new ideas and a new attitude in terms of inviting the American people into participate in their government. Now, what he's suggesting is that people ought to be more involved in the leadership of their government. Now, the reality is, I, I don't know what form that would take in his mind. I don't know what it would look like. But, you know, for a man to sit behind the desk in the Oval Office and to say, well, you know, let's let's get our finger up in the air and figure out which way the wind is blowing, and then we'll go that direction, and everybody will support us then, uh, is not exactly what leadership is all about. And so uh, there's one example. Let me give you the opposite example, a man many people consider to be a tremendous and great leader. And he does say a lot of things that represent good, strong leadership, uh, but not recommending the person. Just want you to hear what he has to say about his view of what might come down the pike, for instance, in the form of miracles. Here's Rudy Giuliani. I don't just pray for miracles. I don't just hope for miracles. I expect miracles. The idea being that, uh, you know, rather than just sitting around with everyone else and waiting to see what happens, you can actually and expectantly move forward toward that change yourself, and that's what we're supposed to be. Now, in a lot of ways, if we're going to be leaders, and, you know, a re- a, another way to think of this, just consider this for a second. Another way to think of this is that a leader is a person who is a change agent. That is, they're a person who brings about change, a person who just shows up and is a placeholder just sits and lets things stay the way they are, is not leading. They may not be a bad person, but they're not leading. If we're going to be leaders, we have to take people where they're not already going. I remember last week listening to news reports on the different candidates and how they were doing in the standings in Iowa. And uh, Look, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that I'm supporting or not supporting any particular candidate right now. Again, it's a Christian worldview show. It's about values and virtue and strength of character and leadership, and that's, that's what this is about to me. But for instance, take Fred Thompson. He's being interviewed about why his numbers aren't better than they are. And you know what his answer was? His answer was simply, uh, you know, I'm not just trying to get the numbers up. This is who I am. I think I'll succeed, but I'm going to be who I am. If people vote for me, that's good. If they don't vote for me, that's okay, too. I'll tell you, uh, let me give you another example of what I'm talking about. When George W. Bush was telling us after September 11th, 2001, what he was going to do, I think he recognized, and you can think whatever else you want about him, but I think he recognized that he was going to be standing alone eventually saying, we have to finish this war. We cannot continue. We cannot just run out when things get difficult. Because when everybody was supporting it, of course, they're all going to be excited that we're going to Iraq, that we're going to fight this battle, that we're going to go into Afghanistan, that we're going to do something to remove the powers that are over there. But when soldiers continue to die and threats continue to come and difficulties begin to mount and the dollars begin to mount and Congress begins to oppose it, do we really want someone who's going to say, oh, well, there's not enough popularity to this, we better quit? Or is there someone that we want leading us who, when all the numbers go down, still stands firm in their resolve against the wind to do what they believe is right? After the the break that we're going to take here in just a second. You'll be free to call in on that topic, but also another topic we're going to introduce about leadership in ministry areas. You're listening to Barry Creamer on Jerry Johnson Live.
If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. Change is one of those uh, hard things for us to deal with in our personal lives, in the world, in our ministries, in church, in all, all kinds of ways. And the people who affect change are leaders, and that's what we've been talking about. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live, and I'm Barry Creamer. I'm glad to be talking with you today, glad you've joined with us. And we've been talking about leadership in terms of politics for the first uh, segment that we had there for the first 15 minutes or so. Uh, I want us to continue to talk about that, and if you have a comment on that or you have something you'd like to say about it, you feel free to call in at 1-800-881-9270, or you can email talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com, and we'll try to get to your emails as you send them. Again, the uh, phone number is one 800 881-9270. But I also want to change the topic a little bit. It's still on leadership, but let's talk about leadership of churches, not just leadership in churches, but the leadership of churches, because churches are God's change agent in the world. I think, you know, what God has called us to be as the body of Christ in the world is those who lead the world to a different place, a place they would not go on their own, they wouldn't know to go on their own, but they follow the church instead. The, the question is, how on earth do we do that? How much do we accommodate culture, and how much do we confront culture? How much do we say, this is different, and this is the direction we're going? How much do we say, you know, we relate to you, you can understand us, we can identify with you, and then we can lead you to where we believe the Lord wants you to go? So how do we become effective leaders in ministry? And if you have a comment on that also, whether you want to talk about uh, your opinion about contemporary ministries or music styles or worship styles or the way people are doing church, whatever it is, you feel free to call in at 1-800-881-9270 or email talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, I've been in, you know, I've been preaching for a long time, uh, 20-something years, maybe 30-something years by now, almost 30 years now, not quite, 28 years, I guess. And uh, I've been in a very living 
thriving traditional churches, and I've been in dead contemporary ones. Similarly, I've been in living contemporary churches who are thriving and multiplying, and I've been in dead traditional ones. Now, I I will say on the whole, now this may just be because I'm more in traditional and conservative churches than I am in uh, really radical or contemporary moving forward churches in that way, Uh, but my experience has been more struggling or, uh, uh, you know, we call them plateaued churches that are traditional. And so uh, what I'm wanting to know is, uh, which way do we go with this? How much do we work to accommodate the culture and change our church so that we can reach out to them? And I want to know what you think about that. Now, uh, just before we get to the the callers that we've got calling in, my oldest son— is a worship pastor. Now, I pastored for 17 years, and now I'm teaching at Chriswell, and I do some uh, interim pastorates now, and I and I preach uh, Sunday mornings. Like right now, I'm preaching down in Corsican at Cornerstone Baptist Church every week, having a great time down there. Love them. I've gotten to love some congregations uh, in the time that I've gotten to be with them. And uh, I appreciate congregations who are trying to reach their community, and those that I've served in lately are really doing a good job of that. Uh, my oldest son, though, who is 23 years old right now, is a worship pastor on one of the campuses of one of the largest churches in the state. In fact, one of the largest churches in the country. Uh, his campus alone would be considered a megachurch by most people. Uh, the congregants in his church are mostly young. They're all haute couture. I'm talking high culture, fine, you know, the best clothes, uh, hairdos that I don't understand but are really popular and, and acceptable. So, uh, that, you know, that, that, that's, the, that's the church. And I, you talk about a church that knows how to connect with people where they are. That church really has it going on. Now, the only reason I'm not identifying it is because he's not here, and he is here with me in the studio today. I appreciate him coming, and I'll, I'll, I'll get him on the air in just a second. Uh, but the only reason I'm not mentioning the name of the church is because he's not speaking for the church. I'm just asking him to speak for himself, because we've had this conversation before, and we'll have it many times in the future, and I'm interested in hearing where he is on some of these things, but I'm also interested in you being able to interact with him on this stuff. So I also want you to know he's a singer-songwriter, and he does some devotional music, and some secular music. And uh, I want him to be able to talk about that, too, because how much we accommodate culture and how much we stand apart from it or separate ourselves from it is an important part of that. So uh, I'm going to ask him some questions in just a second, but right where we are right now, let's get David on the line in Dallas. I appreciate you calling in, David. What do you have on on your mind? Uh, My question is Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, you're saying the church, you know, where's the line with the accommodate culture? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, that when I think about Alcoholics Anonymous, I think about Colossians 2.8, uh, where Paul says um, basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. And what, is your, what is your take on that? And, uh, you know, what is your take on that? Well, I want to understand your question just a little bit better. Are you asking me to give my opinion on Alcoholics Anonymous or on churches? Yes, should the church, uh, let's say, have that? In its, in its, you know, it's part of its ministry. Oh, 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 you know, oh, okay. The big book and, you know, gotcha. study the big book and all that. Yeah, I, I got you. So, um, and let me just broaden it out a little bit, because it's not just Alcoholics Anonymous, but Boy Scout troops, for instance, are in churches. Uh, all kinds of organizations have uh, groups that meet at churches, and in a lot of churches, it's actually considered a church ministry. They officially support that ministry. Uh, so that, that's actually a perfect question, David. I appreciate your asking it. Uh, and the reference that you gave was to Colossians 2.8, where it talks 
about how men could deceive you and lead you astray with philosophy and vain deceit, following these uh, teachings or traditions of men uh, after the, the the fundamental teachings of the world instead of following Christ. The the uh, you know my direct answer for you is this. If it's possible to do one of those ministries without compromising the gospel of Christ, then more power to you. But it is interesting that uh, we would have groups in our churches uh, that don't specify, for instance, who a higher power is uh, and still consider it a church ministry. But, but if you don't do that, those people who are uh, looking for a solution, looking for an answer that works, and Alcoholics Anonymous certainly seems to provide that, um, they're not going to come on the property. They're not going to be exposed to your church. It doesn't become the gateway ministry that you want it to be. Uh, David, can I ask your opinion about it real quickly? What are you thinking about that? Well, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous came from moral rearmament, and, uh, you know, that was a problem. That's a problem to me. Right. Uh, and people will say, if you go through those 12 steps, then you're saved. Ah. And, I, you know, I've heard people who've been involved in AA for a number of years Right. Make that statement. And they find their deliverance in it, and they think that's all there is. And, and, well, and, well, they consider themselves saved in right. the sense of righteous before the eyes of God. Right. And they, you know, that, that's a shame. Uh, I think a lot of people are like that. I've met a lot of people who have the mistaken notion that because they survived a crash or because they turned their life around or turned over a new leaf that they were suddenly transformed. That is one of the dangers we have by associating a ministry like that with a church. But again, uh, we still want to create that connection. David, thanks so much for your call. I appreciate you doing that. Now, uh, Philip, I appreciate you coming in today and doing this with me and, and, and us being able to share this time together. So uh, thanks for coming. Thanks. It's good to have you. Yeah, yeah, it is good to have you here. Uh, listen, what I want to ask you is this, Philip, because you've done music in all kinds of venues. You've done it at churches all over the place. Uh, you do it now in a church where I think the music services are, you know, they're profound, if nothing. I don't know how else to say it. They are profound. And you lead that. I, and I find it a, a really impressive ministry. I'm, I think you've had more than your fair share of success to get to this point. My question is, just you personally, how do you personally balance the music ministry, you know, music as worship, the ability to serve God, and a concert performance, you know, just getting up and basically entertaining people, which is, you know, important. We consider that really important in our culture, but it's not the same thing as worship or serving people through music, or maybe it is serving people. I don't know. How do you, how, how do you personally balance uh, music ministry with concert performances, let's put it that way? Well, I'll say, first of all, I don't, I don't know that you can ever balance those two things. I don't know that you can ever find a, a good medium of, of you know, when, when should you do one or when should you do the other. I think the more important thing is, uh, as you were saying earlier, is that you have, uh, you have groups of people that you're, you're in front of and you're leading when you're doing this. Uh, and no matter whether I'm playing in a club or whether I'm playing at church, I'm, um, I am taking those people somewhere for, for the brief moments that I'm on stage. So I think... Um, I think it, you can be doing one or the other no matter where you are. Um, the tough thing about that is that, um, that you have to know where you want to take those people. Uh, like yeah. you said before, you have right. to have a vision as a leader. Um, it's, it's not about trying to take them where they want to go. It's about taking them where you know they need to. So the really difficult thing for me is when I'm writing music or when I'm picking out songs for a set, right. uh, things like that, it's, it's figuring out where, where those people need to go. So I have to have the vision for each one. And, um, well, where do you take people if, uh, like, you know, when I'm taking, when, when I meet someone who's lost, 
I have a specific goal for them. I, you know, I, ha- I have the gospel to give them, and I want to take them down the path toward Christianity. Where do you take them if you're not taking them down that path, if you're performing in some venue where you're not leading people to Christ directly? That, that's what I would say, is that the benefit that I have as, as a Christ follower myself is that no matter what kind of music I'm doing, no matter whether it's in the church or whether it's in a, in a club or whatever, whatever I may be doing, um, I know that ultimately my goal is to, to reach people for Christ. Right. And so through whatever music that I'm writing, um, whether it's in a secular or a Christian environment, I know that my ultimate goal is that I have I have the key, I have what they need, I have the thing that they're looking for, and I'm trying gotcha. to deliver that to them. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, whatever, whatever venue that may be or whatever sort of song it may end up coming through, uh, the point is to reach that place in their heart where I can then have a connection point for them. Gotcha. Jose, I appreciate your calling in from Dallas. Listen, listen Jose, w- you've got about 30 seconds. Can you squeeze it in real quickly? Yes, I just want to ask you about songs. Uh, I, I got a problem with that. See, like an ex, I understand it's clearly that it speaks about human tongues. Uh-huh. What about uh, Corinthians, like First Corinthians? I got you. Thirteen. Well, I, you know, I was looking forward to solving the problem or the issue of tongues in fifteen seconds. So uh, surely <laughs> we can resolve it right now. Yeah. I will say this, you know, I, I, I am a cessationist. I don't believe in doing that, but we have folks here who do believe in doing it. We'll have to clarify that at a different time. I'm sorry we're not going to be able to do it right now, but Jose, I appreciate your calling in. Listen, if you want to call in with a question about the topics we're talking about or with an opinion about, for instance, contemporary ministry, you can. Chime Chime in at 1-800-881-9270. Right after the break, we'll be taking your calls and talking more about leadership in ministry. How do we take the world from where they are to where they ought to be? You're listening to Barry Creamer on Jerry Johnson Live. So suppose you walked into church, and instead of hearing Holy, 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 or the doxology, that was the first song you heard. A lot of us do walk into church and hear songs like this when we're getting started. Uh, This song, along with the the last song, were songs that were written by my son, Philip, who's sitting here with me in the studio. And, uh, you know, in fact, that last song that we played, uh, Change, I Need to Change, uh, you wrote that for a series of sermons your pastor was doing. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, good. So, uh, you know, I I know that what motivates you in writing songs like this is, well, tell me, I mean, what what is that motivates you to write a song like this one we were just listening to, Whisper Wind of God? That song was specifically written um, knowing that, that we need some songs that'll kind of stir up a passion to reach people in our churches. Um, that's what that song is about. It's about um, about seeing God and then having something then to share with others. Good. Um, that's generally the focus of the songs that I write. So here's the question I have for everyone who's uh, listening, for those of us who are just trying to think through what we're supposed to do as churches to reach people. How much more should we be doing to accommodate culture in order to reach that culture? Or should we be doing more to toe the line and remove not, in quotes that I grew up learning, remove not the ancient landmarks to defend the old ways? Which way, you know, which way do we do this? How do we reach them? Do, are, does it bother you? 
when you're going into a church and they're playing songs you've never heard. They're singing things you've never heard. They're, they're using words you're not familiar with. Does that bother you? Does it bother you when uh, the congregation's not dressed the way you're used to seeing them? I, I think it bothers a lot of us when that happens. I think there's some justification for it, too. So I'm curious to know what you think about it, and uh, that's why we're inviting you to call in if you want to. Uh, the number is 1-800-881-9270. If you'd say, you know, I, at my church, this is what we do because we want to reach people who aren't church people, or to call in and say, you know, at my church, we sing the songs I grew up singing, and we're taking a firm stand for the doctrines of Christ to begin with, and we don't feel like we have to compromise that in order to reach people anyway. Whichever way uh, you fall on this, I'd be interested in hearing from you. Again, the number is 1-800-881-9270 if you have an opinion on that. Now, here's my, uh, <laughs> here's my, uh, I grew up uh, listening to this this man preach. I'm not going to say who it was right now, because I, I think this is a funny quote, but uh, you can take it pejoratively if you want to, however you want. Uh, but he used to sort of make fun of ministries that really went out of their way to accommodate the culture and bring people into the church. And what he would say is this, making fun of them. He would say, you know, we did this ministry and we got those kids there. We got these adults there. We got these people there and we fed them and we played games with them and we got them saved and they didn't even know it. Uh, (laughs) You know, that obviously there's something missing with that. Now, uh, Philip, you've done a lot of traveling around different states, different places, a lot of different churches and uh, done ministry for them, done it with youth, done it with others. And uh, I'm, I'm curious to know if you've had any requests from those churches, you know, when you go to them and they say, please don't do this or, or do this, uh, if you've had any particular requests or limitations that made it very difficult for you to do what you believe you're called to do. Anything like that? Yeah, oftentimes we go to churches, and I, I kind of would categorize churches two different ways. I think they're one type of church would be um, the leadership is trying to meet a, a criteria that's really unrealistic, and that's to please the congregants, you know, the people that are right. coming. Right. The, the second uh, the type of church that, I, that I've been to is, is the type of church that is, that's bent on reaching people, and that's there are no real physical boundaries that they're going to limit they'll themselves do anything. to. Yeah, they'll do anything to reach them. Um, I think those are the two different types, and and oftentimes uh, the struggle for us traveling was we'd we'd go to smaller and and larger churches either way, and uh, the churches who were more trying to meet a criteria would often say, you know, don't turn the music up louder than 85 decibels, and don't jump up and down, and don't get the kids to come to the front of the stage, and all these different things. You start creating all these different boundaries, and it's not that rules are bad or anything like that, but you start creating all these boundaries, and the focus is lost. You you forget what the original intent of what you're doing is, and the purpose is to reach people. And uh, the people that they're inviting to these outreach events oftentimes are coming from all different types of life. And so, so if you were to put it in terms of coloring, you'd say uh, they were, they managed to stay within the lines, but they may have ended up coloring the wrong color. Right. Okay. That's got good. the idea. Yeah, that's good. I appreciate uh, the callers that we have on the line, Scott. Thanks for calling in from Mesquite. Uh, what do you have on your mind today? Yes, I was uh, the difference between having the regular specified church time, church service and having Mm -hmm. contemporary music or music that people are unfamiliar with, I mean, is that intended for that service to be strictly evangelistic? And I'm thinking that the people that are already there that are are believers uh, are kind of over the searching and, oh, I wonder about this and, oh, I wonder about that. And and there's nothing wrong with with hymns. (laughs) I think there should be incorporated. There should be both. If If it's strictly an evangelistic outreach, Right, um, but, you know, Scott. When you go to church on Sunday morning, which way do you think it is? Do you think, it, it, like, for instance, at your church, is it directed to the community, the lost, the neighborhood, or is it directed to your church members? Is it an act of worship? I would say to the church members. Okay, so it's an act of worship. Well, it is where I go. 
Okay, that, and that's that's what I mean. Do you think it should be that way, or you just, or is it just happen, how it happens to be, and you're not sure? I don't see a problem if there was a blend. Okay, but but perhaps the songs there could be more than just the songs, more than just the driving beat, more than just a seeking, searching. You know. Maybe the song could have a little bit of explanation right. before or after. Okay, I, I got you. So what are you thinking when you hear all that? You're a worship well, pastor. You help organize services. You work through all that. What are you thinking? I think I think it's interesting that we limit um, that we limit the idea of worship to to songs that people are more familiar with and can sing along with and and glorify God through through speaking of the different attributes and all all those different things. Uh-huh. Uh, I, th- I don't think worship is limited to that. I think actually uh, one of the greatest acts of worship that we can participate in is reaching out to others and uh, and doing things that that uh, that reach those people who don't know who Christ is that don't have the message. And so I think. Um, as he as he asked, you know, can we explain what the song's about? Can we can we make it a little bit more realistic for the people who come and know all the hymns and all that? Right. I think it's important to have great transitions, to have a good flow, to have everybody's minds going in the same direction during a service. But I think the point um, is to create a service in which uh, those people that are there that have been coming for thirty years and they know the hymns, they know Holy, 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 and all those great songs. Right. That they can that they can grow through the newer uh, the new thoughts and new um, new ways of doing worship. They can experience yeah. the same ideas of God. God, but uh, in 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 new music, you know. Yeah, 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 right. And I I think all of us have been in places where traditional music is used, and people really do worship. But we've also we've all also unfortunately been in places where traditional music is used. And, and basically, people are just going through the motions. Right. Uh, of course, that's true about contemporary music, too. I mean, people can go Absolutely. through the motions with either one. Uh, all right, Jacob, I appreciate you calling from Little Elm and holding on the line so long. Uh, what do you have on your mind today? Yeah, when I look at music in churches, any music or worship service that people will not think, uh, if it's an amusement, I don't consider that as a worship of God. Now, if it just happens to be pleasing, does that make it not worshipful? If it if it's being sung to the Lord, but people are really impressed by it and they enjoy it while somebody is sincerely singing to God, would that be worshipful? To me, it should not be. It should not be enjoyable. Uh, that I understand where you're coming from because it's not for people, but 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 I mean, really, uh, d- do you think that singing in church should ever be for the other people who are in church? Do you ever think that? It's, singing in church should make people think about God, wants to worship, wants to give their heart unto God, and not to entertain them. But don't you think that uh, it's possible for a person? Do you think it's possible for a person to be entertained and to be led toward God? You're saying no, right? Yeah, I said no. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 what do you think about that, Philip, when you hear that? I think that's interesting. I actually like the, uh, the idea behind where he's coming from. Um, I think that the great thing about music is that you can express uh, you can express who God is through it. I think that's kind of the foundation. I haven't I haven't touched on that yet. But whether you're singing a song that uh, that's old and people can recognize, or it's something new, or it's something for outreach, or something for personal devotion, right. I think the point of it is that we're bringing attention to God, that we are understanding and knowing God in a new way. We're learning new things about Him and loving right. Him more. So I agree with the fact that it should be focused on God. But I, but I do think that it affects other people in different ways. Whether it's affecting someone who's lost and drawing them in. Okay. Uh, 
to Christ for the first time or whether it's renewing somebody's love for God or, or, or deepening it. Gotcha. Uh, the focus is that we are loving God through that music. We're going to try to squeeze in two more calls before the break here, if it's possible. Uh, we've got Kim on the line from Ennis. Now, uh, Kim, just before you say anything, l- let me point out that uh, to Philip and Kim and everybody who's listening, also that Ephesians 5, when it talks about worshipful music, includes the statement that we should be singing to one another, not just to God. We're not just singing to God. We're singing to one another. That's why we sing out loud. God could hear us if we just sang in our heads, but we're supposed to open up and let other people hear it. So I appreciate that about it. Well, Kim, you may not even be calling about that, but I just wanted to say it. So thanks for calling from Ennis. What's going on? Well, I just wanted to make a comment about the traditional and contemporary and trying to merge that. And that's what we try to do at our church. Mm-hmm. I think so a lot of churches try, try that. Merge the two because I'm in the middle, you know, I'm, I'm okay. in my mid-30s. So I appreciate both aspects. But I think sometimes with contemporary music, we have our young people that get caught up in the feeling of the music versus trying to get caught up in the focus. Okay, Philip, what do you think about just balancing it? I think the important thing is that you you understand that your congregation can be made up of all of of all different kinds of people and that you incorporate music that's going to speak to each one of those people that will be there. Uh, whether or not it's old or new isn't what's right. important. Gotcha. All right, one more. Stan, I appreciate you calling in. Uh, Stan from Midlothian, what's going on? Yes, I just want to come in. I agree with uh, the last caller and... Um, I understand Philip's perspective on on contemporary that each service that he he is focused on each service, but not everybody has that same sure focus. sure. I appreciate that, Stan, because here's my deal. Leadership is different in different venues. It might be different for the church than it is for a politician, but it's still about taking things where they're not right now. And leadership among different individuals might be different. Somebody might lead in a real strong-headed, confrontational way, and somebody else might lead in a way that's very cooperative and understanding and sensitive, or however you want to say it. The point is that we lead people toward Christ. That's the direction that all of us want to go with this. Now, we're going to be talking about leadership in a slightly different direction when we come back, especially in terms of ethics and technology and bioethics and where, where, uh, for instance, stem cell research or cloning or all this work that's going on is okay and where it's not. You're listening to Barry Creamer for Jerry Johnson Live. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu.
Well, you're listening to Barry Kramer on Jerry Johnson Live, and we've been talking about uh, how we lead as Christians in a world that's lost. And we're going to talk. We're going to shift gears in just a minute uh, to talk about ethics and uh, what we should do technologically and what we shouldn't do, and how ethicists ought to be leading in that uh, venue, but really are not. They're not taking the stand they ought to. We'll talk about that in just a second. I have one more question for you, Philip. Uh, just in general, uh, how would you characterize the places where you've been and seen real success in ministry? I'm just asking for your opinion, uh, but just want to know what you thought about. You've been to places and you've seen what looked like real success. I just want to know how you would characterize them. But what I mean by that is basically two things. One, what was what was the church like before the success? What were they doing? What were the preconditions? And then secondly, what made it look successful to you? What made it look like things were going the right direction? Just asking your opinion. I'd say the preconditions are first and foremost the past the pastor's vision was focused and and well communicated to the staff. They were going the same direction. Everybody was focused right. on the same thing. I think the second most important thing is that the the physical limitations and boundaries that so often become issues in churches were not issues. They were not but made you, issues. But you know that kind of goes with the first thing you were saying because I, I will say this is appropriate for today because we're talking about leadership. In all of my experience dealing with churches, churches prosper in the gospel ministry when they respect. The office of pastor, That's right. and when they're willing to follow their pastor, and that that also means when the pastor is visionary in obedience to God, That's and when exactly he's submissive right. in his role and relationship to the Lord. So, no, I appreciate that. And then, uh, what else were you going to say? Anything on measuring think, that success in a particular way? Uh, well, I mean, success can be measured in, in lots of different ways. Oftentimes, people focus on how many people raise their hands, right. or how many people how many came to down. Christ, and all that. Yeah, sure. how many come down? I think the I think the true gauge is is long term, and you can't you can't gauge it in a day or two that you're out of church. Um, I I think the important thing is, though, that um, the, the real success is that the staff and the pastor, along with the body of the church, are going in a direction. They're reaching people for Christ. Yeah, and, and I, I'm telling you, the, the pastors I respect most are the men who take their stand and they do what they believe in, and they lead their church toward the vision that God has given them for their congregation, and they do it when the budget declines, and they do it when the numbers aren't being represented, but they also do it when the budget is being blessed and when the numbers are showing up, but they do it because they're committed to it, not just because they figured out when the tiger is and isn't going to eat them. That's that's what I think this is all about. Speaking of tigers, by the way, there was an interesting thing that Wired News did today, naming uh, the 10 top new organisms of 2007. And one of those is a, uh, a really odd cat. I- I'll let you hear this in, in their own words. Cats are known for seeing well in the dark, but these unusual cats can be seen in the dark. Scientists in South Korea say these Turkish Angora cats are clones that were born earlier this year. When they were cloned, scientists inserted a fluorescent gene. The modified gene makes them visible under ultraviolet light. Scientists say the achievement shows they can produce laboratory cats with genetic diseases. That could help in the development of new treatments for human hereditary diseases. They say the genes of cats are similar to those in humans. A Japanese scientist known for cloning fish says the discovery could be significant if it succeeds in finding those cures. Diane Kepley, The Associated Press. Let me clarify what you just heard. You just heard that uh, genetic engineers have designed a cat that will glow under ultraviolet light. Uh, Whatever they want to do with it, whatever they don't want to do with it, you can hear all these explanations about it. It just basically sounds like they're coming up with a new form of aspirin or something. They're manipulating the genetic material of biological animals in order to produce weird species, for instance, glow-in-the-dark cats. And you know where glow-in-the-dark cats fit on this list of 10 different top new organisms of 2007? That's number seven 
on the list. Number seven. Number one are these hypoallergenic cats. I think they're number one on the list because they make more money. Uh, they genetically designed these cats that wouldn't provoke allergies. And uh, you can get one. If you're allergic to cats and you want a cat, you can have one. No problem. $27,000. Bring it right to your doorstep. I bet you could even get free shipping with it. $27,000. There are also E. coli, this this bacteria, you know, Escherichia coli, that produces butanol, a fuel. Uh, there are fluorescent tadpoles. Just an artist did this, a guy with a, an art gallery in Russia, Dmitry Bulatov. Uh, he produced these tadpoles that glow red and green and uh, displayed them as a work of art. There's lettuce that produces insulin. There's trees that absorb extra CO2 so Al Gore won't be quite so popular. There are rapid vaccine-making button mushrooms. That is, these mushrooms grow really fast, and we can produce them in such a way that what they produce is a vaccine that we need for some well, for instance, a bioterror attack or something like that. They all sound like good ideas in some ways, but I mean, think about it. We're producing genetic mutations deliberately and introducing them into the world. Uh, cancer-fighting clostridium bacteria. Who wouldn't want that? Uh, by the way, what they do is attack. Well, we don't have time to talk about what they do, but it's interesting. They've produced schizophrenic mice. As if I need schizophrenic mice in the world. Now, I understand why they're doing this, because they want to be able to do research. They want to be able to learn things by studying these animals and be able to apply that to humans. Uh, yeast that uh, senses uh, certain odors and then reacts to that in a, in a unique way so that you could develop devices, for instance, that could sense the presence of dynamite uh, by using rat genes that are mixed together with the yeast. Now, you know what bothers me most about all of this? That nobody's bothered by it. Nobody's troubled by the fact that we're doing deliberate genetic mutations in biological organisms and then introducing them into the world. We don't want to introduce them into the wild. I understand that. We're trying to control it. But we can't control what we're doing when we're working at this level. Now, you say to yourself, listen, technology's a good thing. We need to be going where we're going. We need to be doing what we're doing. We just need to let the technologists do it. Let the scientists run. Let them go where they want to go. You know what's happened to ethics? Ethics is the, you know, the study of right and wrong, uh, figuring out what's right and wrong. And a practical ethicist is a person who looks at what people are doing and then makes a declaration about whether they're right or wrong and what they're doing. You know what ethicists tend to do today? What we tend to do as ethicists is run along behind or just in front of technology and then justify what we see as inevitable about it. There's a famous ethicist from the 20th century who said ethics ought to be different from that, that we ought to be doing more, that there are times that we ought to say no. It has driven me crazy listening to people who are scientists over and over say, we're the ones who develop the science. We get to, to determine whether it's right or wrong. Listen to what Paul Ramsey said about this. He said, we ought to, there are people who raise the ethical question with a serious and not a frivolous conscience. A man of frivolous conscience announces that there are ethical quandaries ahead and that we must urgently consider before the future catches up with us. By that, what he means is, we need to devise a new ethics that will provide the rationalization for doing in the future what men are bound to do because the new actions and interventions of science will have made it possible. We're bound to do it. We've got to make it feel right. In contrast to that. What ethicists ought to be doing is what a man of serious conscience would do by raising urgent ethical questions that there may be some things that men should never do. The good things that men do can only be made complete by the things they refuse to do. There are some things that are right and some things that are wrong, and somebody needs to step up at points where we're doing stem cell research, for instance, and say we are not going to kill embryos to save other lives. That's what leadership does. Whether the community agrees or disagrees, we take our stand and we represent what is right no matter what. 
You've been listening to Barry Creamer on Jerry Johnson Live, and I hope you'll join us again tomorrow. been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.